Hi there and welcome to another episode of Leading with James Ashton. This time we talk Moroccan meatballs and musical extravaganzas. My first guest is John Vincent. He's the co-founder and chief executive of healthy fast food chain Leon. They're a fixture on many British high streets and are now expanding fast in the US. Alongside John is Craig Hassel. He's the chief executive of the Royal Albert Hall, a landmark London venue, of course. It hosts 400 performances in the main auditorium every year and attracts 1.7 million visitors. You can read more about both of them in our episode notes. As ever, this podcast invites two leaders to compare notes about how they run their organisations. We're supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. I began this conversation asking Craig about first impressions when he walked into the Albert Hall. Well, the first time I went to the venue was to put on Romeo and Juliet. Yep. And ballet, of course, normally is in a theatre, not in a big space like the Royal Albert Hall. So seeing the Royal Albert Hall and thinking, how on earth will ballet work here was a bit uh, daunting. But yeah, it was great. It, it worked really well. And the best thing was the audience absolutely loved it. So it wasn't a ballet audience. It was a, an audience of all sorts of people from all walks of life. And they had the best time. So yeah, it was great. But what about when you got in and, and then it was yours? This is your office. Well, it was even better. I mean, I'd worked, you know, as a promoter hiring the Royal Albert Hall and also as a co-producer with the Royal Albert Hall. So coming in as the CEO, I was very excited. I knew the hall very well. I was a bit daunted because I hadn't run a venue before. I'd only run performing arts companies. And I always used to think, well, we're the ones that do all the work. We make the sets and costumes. We do all the rehearsals. We hire the actors or the dancers and so on and so on. What does the venue do? Do the venue just mm. turns on the lights or yeah. cleans the toilets? Yeah. <laughs> I've learnt they do a lot more than that. Yeah. <laughs> and what did you, because there's so much, only so much you can change with the Albert Hall. It, it's been there for almost 150 years. There's this dual purpose, protect the hall, promote arts and science. So you have to put your modern spin on that brief, if you like. It's funny you say that. There's actually quite a lot you can change. The great thing with the Royal Albert Hall is it's founded on the a vision from Prince Albert, who was a very clever guy. There's a German who came to live in England, married Queen Victoria. He was a visionary fellow. He had this whole idea to democratise learning and arts and mm. science and entertainment and, and all sorts of things, which is why he built the V&A and the Natural History Museum and Imperial College mm. and, and the Royal Albert Hall. So now what I want to do is, is go back to the vision and say, what, what was Albert doing? Why did he yeah. want to build this place? And what was it about? And so making the Royal Albert Hall more accessible, more open, more available to everyone is something that I'm really keen mm. to do. And Albert would love it. He'd be totally on board for it. Mm. You've channelled Prince Albert channeled already. Albert. He's on already. my shoulder. Got, He's here in the room now. You've got his, uh, <laughs> his body wear. John, <laughs> John, what about you? Because you've not got 150 years of heritage. You have got 15. But there's always <laughs> been good. an element of mission, I think. I mean, you, yeah. you, you never set up Leon just to sell food, did you? Uh, no. So what did you set it up for? Um, it turns out... It it was and this is maybe a grand way of saying it, but it was is to help humankind on their fundamental journey towards wholeness. I'm not sure I quite knew that at the time, but I've worked, <laughs> I've kind of subsequently worked it out, um, which I guess you know to help people connect with themselves, each other, and the planet was basically why um, why uh, why we did it. And in subsequent reading, uh, it turns out that that is what most philosophers and most religions think is man's fundamental or humankind's fundamental journey. So I didn't know I was quite doing that, but I think that's vaguely what we're doing. It sounds a bit grand, doesn't it? It sounds very Prince Albert, actually. Yeah, I I think that I need to find out more about Prince Albert. I'm sorry that I didn't know that history. Um, So, yes, we're in the Albert tradition, I think. You are. I think at least by the end of this recording, there should be the makings of a Leon within the Albert Hall. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) We should talk to 
John. King. Yes. And, yes. Jo- and John, how are you doing on that mission then? Because it is quite a challenge. You're growing at an incredible rate. I think we're growing. Yeah. But I, I think possibly we've had, an, in observable terms, an impact on what others are doing as well. So I, I often say that... Actually, our biggest, Leon's biggest impact is in changing McDonald's. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, if I think about, you know, some of the sustainable initiatives, some of the desire to make food uh, a little bit better for you, create environments that maybe connect people a bit more. I think we've had something of an impact on mm-hmm. us. Uh, and, you know, there was a guy called Denny Henneken who ran McDonald's Europe, was the architect of the turnaround here. He worked with Steve Easterbrook, who worked for him in the UK, who's now the global person. Mm. And Denny, Denny said, anything you see in McDonald's today, I'm sure this isn't entirely true, but it's a lovely acceleration. He said, everything you see in McDonald's today we're trying to change is because we stood in front of Carnaby Street and we said, this is what good fast food should mm. be. Mm. So I think probably our impact has been as much on people across the world, even though we're only in six countries, mm. I think probably has been kind of indirect in a way but i think to answer your question more about us you know we on sustainability we were well ahead of the curve in terms of plastics green energy all of our restaurants powered by green energy uh, where we buy the energy which is the majority of them we've been well ahead of the curve in terms of moving away from red meat to plants i think well ahead of the curve in terms of sustainable fishing policies Uh, i chair something called the council for sustainable business for the uk government henry and i wrote the school food plan for the uk which finally tried to and i think he's having some success in joining up food across all the different areas that food happens in a school and that has a dramatic impact on the schools of the uk in terms of the atmosphere in the schools and a childhood attainment Mm. so Mm. i think probably Mm. leon is just one manifestation one leg one chapter really of the of the impact we're trying to make more broadly Mm. we're not jesus but you know we're very naughty boys (laughs) and girls in the case of allegra yeah we're trying we're doing all right. What is the thing that people are or will be picking up this winter? What's the, the new food or the hot new thing? Oh, the hot new thing. Okay, so I think that we have two things that are particularly popular at the moment. One one is the, the new gluten-free chicken nuggets that we've introduced, and the other is the vegan burger. So I think we're seeing a massive bifurcation of people that, on the one hand, want to eat vegan. Mm. Uh, and we've got a great, I have to say, it's, it tastes like duck. It's unbelievable. It's a, are we taking our love burger? and we're turning it into effectively a hot duck wrap burger because it's going to be a, a normal burger but with hoisin sauce and cucumber and the vegan burger. It is unbelievable. So I think people are going to be uh, eating that. And I think that we're going to see a massive bifurcation of people like, you know, Jeremy Clarkson uh, on the one hand saying, I'm going to carry on eating beef, thanks very much, and, and the other tribe, which is going to continue the acceleration towards veganism. So mm. that's the sort of the big bifurcating trend mm. that I see next. I think we need, all need to go across the road after this uh, <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Craig, the 150th anniversary is, is hoving into view, the Albert Hall. It so you, as well as interpreting, the, you know, getting to know Prince Albert as you have done, you have to think, how do we celebrate this? And how do we get, you know, ready for the big birthday? Looking at the numbers, there's nothing, this is not a burning platform. There's nothing going wrong. There's 400 shows in the main auditorium every year. You probably can't get any more in. We can't really put more shows on. My staff would kill me if we tried. Last year we did 401 shows. Wow. And that's with four weeks dark for setups and various yeah. things. So when we that's go four weeks in total, across. four weeks in total. So, so that's a few days even there. Well, it's like four discrete weeks. So there's one week for the Cirque du Soleil setup, one week for the prom setup, and there are two other weeks. They're so big. I mean, we just saw the plans for Cirque's show in January, and it has a a, a massive tank of water and a a water curtain and tons and tons of kit coming in. So anyway, that's just one week. 
So the 150th, we basically curating the hires that come in. And I have gradually changed the mix since I've been at the hall to do a few more shows ourselves, just oh, okay. so we can increase the quality and we can have a bit more control over the artists, that kind of thing. I mean, mm. we'll always have, of course, the problems forever, we hope. Yeah. Cirque du Soleil, we hope forever. A lot of the rock and pop acts. But again, back on Albert's vision, we want to have more events going into the future, which are about debate and discussion. And it's interesting to hear what yeah. you talk, John, about the way the planet's going. You know, mm. the Royal Albert Hall should be the go-to space for discussion of these things. Right. Let's come and talk about climate change right. and talk about veganism yeah. or diets or the UK economy or our place yeah. in the world. Almost it's, like the forum. It's a forum. So it's it's, like, like, it's, it's a, a, like a safe space. And it's yeah. circular. It's what Parliament yeah. isn't. Parliament is exactly. adversarial. So yeah. you can create a circular Yeah, well, it was designed. Good conversation. Yeah, Albert's yeah. idea was design a, a democratic space like mm. a Roman Senate. Which maybe could brilliant. we move the House of Parliament now? Because they <laughs> oh, only sit about four on. hours a year. That's so true. Maybe, yeah, so that's maybe they could true. do it in the week. I think you've, off. you've got we, less we, problem we, with vermin, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are rather full of us. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay, so it's not necessarily about doing more, it's about doing better and different because I was surprised to see that the science, science is in the mission as well. So mm. science and the planet and so on, you can do more. I suppose then the challenge is how do you make a great event that's as good as the Teenage Cancer Trust week of pop concerts? All pop stars. Yeah. And the challenge we have, it's a good challenge, is that Everybody wants to hire the Royal Albert Hall. So it's, mm. it's a buyer's market as far as we're concerned. Mm. So we're able to curate the hires and we can mm. say, look, that's great, but it's not good for us and it's yeah. not right at the moment and so on and so on. So the shows that are on there, we can curate. But we do want to go more towards uh, debate, discussion. And the science agenda is tricky because we need to sell 5,500 tickets to mm. fill the arena. Now, there aren't that many scientists, no offence to the scientists out there, that can fill 5,500 seats. What's an example of your premier science events? Well, we're looking now at an astronomy conference um, oh, coming up yeah. in 2021, which would have astronauts and pop singers who are scientists. So I won't name names, I haven't confirmed it yet. But there are uh, surprisingly a lot of pop stars are mathematicians and scientists. Or like Brian Cox. Well, oh, Brian, Brian Cox, Brian, Brian May. Brian May will yeah. be free. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because of the shape, you can hang a lot of things down. Einstein. We can hang Einstein. stuff. Einstein. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little bit better on the science than the music. But you know, yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting, historically, Einstein spoke at the Royal Albert Hall. Right. We had the first public demonstration of electric lighting at the Royal Albert wow. Hall. Winston Churchill had the first televised address by a Prime Minister. Wow. But the suffragettes protesting there. So I love walking around, because as you probably amazing. know, my wife presents the problems at your yeah, place. Um, yeah. I love walking around and seeing those old posters of the, and those old photographs. Yeah, yeah. And it goes right from the proms or Elton John to... The launch of the Vauxhall Astra. <laughs> That's right. And, and the Dalai Lama. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so, Craig, although you are the new guy, you can still interpret it and push out in different to different genres and do different things. We can. And, and a really important point is that we, we're not a museum or a mausoleum. Good so, point. you yeah. know, the hall was always a place where contemporary stuff was happening. So mm. we, we like to say history is coming. You know, yeah. look out because amazing mm. stuff's going to happen in the next 150 years, the Royal Albert Hall. Well so done. we encourage young bands and emerging artists and we do workshops with DJs because we want to make sure that we remain relevant as a place. As, and as some of the proms was. are very relevant, aren't oh, they? I, I mean, the proms are brilliant. It's for so that. sad yeah. that people think the proms is just the last night of the proms. Yeah. Oh, I like the proms where they all dump up and down. Yeah, it's like, no, no, no not quite. No. no. Well, actually, Many David, weeks, David two Pick, months. David Pickard, who's the new director of the proms, is a brilliant guy. He came from Glyndebourne, and he will typically always commission a new piece of music for yeah. the first night of the proms, yeah. which is fantastic. You know, for yeah. young composers, he champions uh, women conductors. He's, mm. he's brilliant. So the proms is great for us, particularly yeah. with new music. and. Yeah. 
yeah. and then the future of music, but yeah. also other parts of the year. So your plan is to keep getting bringing the world to the Royal Albert Hall, and, and John, increasingly, you're taking Leon to the world. You know, you mentioned sick markets. Mm. It seems like there's a real focus on the US. Yeah. You have to mm. you go big or go home at some point, I 100%. think. And where is it? When are you going no. big? Well, do you know what? America is a complete startup, isn't it? You know, and you have to have a, re- a founder's mentality mm. going to the home of fast food. How many shops? Um, we've many only got two open, but we, we opened uh, 11 months ago. Mm. And we've got another six that we are about to open. Where are the um, two that are open? They're now? all in DC, also uh-huh. Washington, yeah, DC. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, um, and they're going really well, but you have to just water the plant as if it's a new little, you know, acorn. So, yeah. you know, I said, look, we're not taking an oak tree from the UK and trying to plant it in the soil of America, hoping that it will, mm. the roots will spread. Got to start not just with an acorn tree, but with a sequoia tree. And not with a sequoia, mm. I think, seed. I don't know whether it's an acorn. Work with me. <laughs> but whatever the, whatever your, whatever the equivalent of a, yes, the world. Exactly. a tree yeah. analogy. Yes. Yeah, I'm working know. with the acorn analogy. You know? yeah. So, yeah. Yes. so, yeah, but we have to grow fast in America because it's. America, I think the lines between consumer concepts and how people see businesses is really blurred in America. Yeah, as in, if Apple isn't doing very well as a business, people don't want to use their iPhones. Do you mm. know what I mean? It's yeah, like there's yeah. such a nexus between the kind of how fast you grow, how successful you'll seem to be as a business. Therefore, people kind of f- feed on success mm. in America. So you've got to demonstrate growth, which is interesting when you know we're trying to do it in a way that's sustainable. But I think, um, though, you've got a niche. When I think about Leon in London, where we are, I don't think of it as fast food. I think yeah. of it as convenient yeah. food. Yeah. But it, you know, it is healthy. Yeah. It tastes good. Yeah. So I would think in in the states, you could you could you could carve out a niche yeah. which would be separate to the fast food market, yeah. actually. Yeah. And there's yeah. a real potential. Yeah, no, it's doing all right. Actually. Yeah. Are you wholly owning that, or do you use franchisees? Initially, we're wholly owning because we wanted to mm. be able to, I say, control. No one can control anything, can they? But to do our best to wrap our arms around it and demonstrate to franchisees that we can do it. Because that was my next yeah. question. Is is you know, I was saying to Craig before you came in, surprised you only have, I think, 50-odd outlets in the UK, because yeah. you seem to be on all the, the right street yeah, corners. Well, yeah. But then, you know, go to the States, and then you really have to work hard, I guess, to preserve this culture you've, Absolutely. you've nurtured. How do you Absolutely. do that? I think you do it by having uh, someone like Nikki, who we do have, who's head of people, who has done it here, who can re- really replicate the culture. Mm. There's a guy called Steve Head that is an amazing guy from the point of view of coaching and positivity. We've replicated him. He's gone over there. So, you know, we're taking the expense required to really invest locally. But then you have to recognise, I think, that the cover of Vogue magazine looks different in India, different from how it does in the UK, how Mm. it does in America. So in, in having the same brand positioning... You actually need to adapt how you look. Yeah, if that makes yeah, sense. Because yeah. actually, if the context and the soil changes, then actually the plant is going to grow up differently. So that's why I'm constantly it's trying to true. work out what needs to be replicated because it's Leon, or what needs to change because Leon in that American environment needs to look like this. Hmm. And so that's 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 the magic and that's the kind of magic formula that is important to try and understand. And can hmm. it still be fun the bigger you get? Because I think you're about revenue is about hundred million at the moment and you're I think you've been growing at twenty five percent. So can it still be fun? Can you still taste all the new menu items yeah. and all that stuff or does it have to oh, do you know what? I, you become know, more corporate? I, I find as a disruptor and we've, we've just been to this excellent sort of work with uh, a company called Bain, a company called Chemistry, on th- uh, the three communities of disruptors, scalers, and executors. And the scalers are often the ones that are missed out because they sometimes look a bit boring. We, we've understood that actually as, I, as we grow, me as a disruptor having more scalers around me 
actually makes me perform better on a bigger, bigger stage if I can use uh, an Albert Hall analogy. So you know, I'm not stuck in a. I'm not stuck in the provincial theatre. I'm at the Royal Albert Hall. So for me, the leverage I get from having the scale that I have is actually more liberating than it is constraining at the moment. Who knows what's down the road? But at the moment, having a fantastic head of marketing, head of food, mm. uh, you know, head of ops, etc., is actually quite liberating to me to have mm. that scale, that those scalers working with me. That was far better than your tree analogy, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I could do the tree analogy I, I, again. I didn't mind the tree yeah. analogy actually. Great. <laughs> yeah. Come back to you. What um, is there fun in the, allowed in the organisations that you run? I mean, what is your style of leadership? I try to, as much as possible, keep my hands out of the the business. I try and lead the team. It's tricky when you come from not-for-profits and smaller companies where you're used to organising the tour and doing the marketing and I'm sure it's the same for John you, you want to get your hands dirty but you've got to trust your team so I think the trick is hire people that you trust mm. as you're saying mm. and let them do their job obviously mm. we'll always have a view but just try and let them do their job totally. and, and also I think accept that you know, I'm not always right. Sometimes it's subjective, mm, mm. and it has to be fun. You know, we're, mm. we're putting on shows ultimately, mm, mm. and in the past I've put on shows. That's my, that's my job, mm. and that's to entertain people and educate them, I suppose, but mainly entertain. So if it's not fun, something's going wrong. I think people associate a seriousness with results. Do you know what yeah, I mean? yeah, like, yeah. You know, we need a serious plan. <laughs> we need an aggressive business plan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like have an, have an ambitious, you know, yeah. amazing plan. Totally. Yeah, go yeah. the flow, make and it exciting. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. 100%. But actually, there's a, there's a sort of a mixed view on the on the Albert Hall, and which you referred to in previous interviews. I mean, people do associate it with a great night out, the big extravaganza and so on. But it's quite an intimidating building, and people wouldn't necessarily wander in there for a coffee in the middle of the day, mm. which I think is something you're trying to yeah, I'm trying to change uh, yeah. that. I mean, we, I am working with a very imposing Victorian building with 12 doors. So the challenge mm. is to... You have to find which one. Yeah, exactly. Which, which <laughs> bloody door yeah. I go. Yeah. I've been here before. So, so the, answer, the answer is go in any door you like. It doesn't matter. Yeah, just yeah, just really, come in. Come in. Really so part of the plan I'm working on now is, is this, again, back to the democratisation principles of Prince Albert, yeah. open the building up. So actually open the doors during the day. Come mm. in for a coffee. It's like a church. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, make the ground floor a gallery and show off the archive. Um, That's great. Come and enjoy it. Do workshops and bring in lots mm. more kids and involve the local community. And so we're doing a lot of work in that area operationally and programming wise um, actually one thing we do at the BBC which is fantastic is a thing called a relaxed prom where we do a, a concert with a, an orchestra and it's for people with autism particularly mm. children and we say to the audience you make make as much noise That's as you great. like you know Very bring your parents bring your friends yeah. the, the stewards stand the doors in case anyone sort of freaks out but they don't freak out because the music is brilliant fantastic. and and I get letters from from parents yeah. going, you know, I was always terrified to bring my autistic son to a concert, to a concert because yeah. it makes too much noise. I came along to the Royal Albert Hall, oh, had the time of my life, and we felt, well you know, done. in inverted commas, normal. You think, yeah, oh, thank goodness, great. we've done our job. Well so, yeah, great. philosophically, yeah. Yeah. opening up the building is really, really important to us. Well, back to you, John. What's the thing What's the thing you really worry about that, that could go wrong? Is it something about supply chain or whatever? No, or do you just not worry? Not. I worry about, you... I really worry about food safety and allergies. Yeah. And I think mm. for obvious reasons, you know, if you've been reading the newspapers in the last couple of years, yeah, yeah. you'd work out why I'm so concerned about it. Uh, and I'm concerned about it because, unfortunately, you know, we're the same as the airline industry, that however much you um, focus on safety as your number one priority, um, it's not, you. there are things go wrong. And so, you know, I got in trouble six months or so ago when I was saying, you know what, uh, maybe it was actually a year ago, 
here are all the things that we do at Leon to make ourselves as safe as possible. Please come and audit them yourself. Please come and share your thoughts on them. Here are the things that still can go wrong in any system. And I think that mm. I, I need to mm. be able to communicate to everybody that there are still things that can go wrong in any well-managed system. And um, so I, 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 I sincerely lie awake at night worrying about that kind of thing. I would say, you know, having having been played a part in someone coming to somewhere like a Leon or elsewhere uh, and, and having an allergic reaction. That's probably the thing that I worry about most. Okay, Craig? Uh, well, we live and die by a thing called the NPS, Net Promoter Score. So right. we, we do this qualitative questionnaire after you come and see a show. And we ask you about the show. We ask you about the toilets, about the food, mm. about the way you were treated. Uh, how comfortable was your seat? Was it hot or cold enough? And mm. how was the sound? Everything. And uh, we track that every mm. every performance. And we will use that to improve the sound or improve the restaurants, improve the toilets, improve, I mean, whatever we can do. Interestingly, since I've been at the Royal Albert Hall, it's about to over two and a half years, Rick Astley has scored the highest on the NPS. Really? I don't, I don't, Higher than the toilets. <laughs> as, a, as a complete night out. So you're never going to give him up. We're never going to give him up. That's very good, John. <laughs> oh, you are good value, John. Yeah, yeah that's good. Like, that was good. Would you yeah. recommend me to a friend? I would do. I'll see if I can get you. I'll see if I can get you in the next booth. Out of ten. Okay. I'll like that. I'll like that. Yeah. So that's 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 the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. John, I'd like to go back to the beginning, if I could. And the most interesting thing I've discovered about you today. Go on. I was involved in the creation of the Net Promoter Score at Bain. Oh, really? Fred Reichel did it. We love it. It's and we score very highly. I should say. Yeah, yeah, It's great. But what's interesting is the Net Promoter Score of seventy is actually quite good, isn't it? Yeah. It's not seventy percent. No, 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 no. It's it's because it literally. Does net off the, the, the detractors, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. You take away the neutral the, people. You the, take. It's like the bottom six. Yeah. Get, you take away the you take yeah. away the you, know, you take away all the neutral ones. Yes. Because they're not going to be negative or positive. Yeah. And it's the netting off of the positive and negative, and it's actually a really fascinating yeah. process. We, anyway, back to the question. Another claim to fame, John. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> yeah, one, yeah, yeah, the yeah. one I was going, <laughs> as well as being yeah. in at the beginning of Net Promoter Score, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, that's all I did on my grade. Right? And, and, <laughs> and the fact that you, you've married very well. Oh, you're married way above my station. I was going to say back in. Time you yes. you ran. Uh, I don't want. Can I call them discos? Oh I don't my know. god! Yeah, no, dance events. How did you know that? What is disco? Who researched it's, that? It's a very clever. Do you want it's on your website? What? <laughs> is it? Oh, is, is it, I've finally that. got a Wikipedia page. It's still, yeah. it's still on your website. But, but, you, but not only disc, uh, not only dance events. Yeah. You did them with another um, overachiever, Richard Reed from Innocent Drinks. Yeah, ah. I did. I did. We used to have a dance event called Please. I, I think I was. I think from him, I was Ents officer, and he was. He ran the boiler room, which was the um, this thing that where we should do a dance event called Please together. Did you play the Royal Albert Hall? Do you never know what? Say we ne- did never the, say never. Do you know what? My events company did a gig at the Royal Albert oh, Hall for Richard go. Branson. Oh, yeah, brilliant. I was really proud to do brilliant. it. It was a virgin event. Yeah. But yeah, these dance events, they were like everyone in the year above us were jumping up and down to Come On Eileen by Dex's Midnight Runners <laughs> or Soft Cell or something, Tainted Love. I love that. And song. suddenly in our year at university, it was a, the switch went on and dance music suddenly mm. came. Probably mm. 1991. Mm. Dance music replaced Dexy's Midnight Runners. And so <laughs> we had this terrible event, Richard and I called Passion. P-A-S-H-N. There was free pizza. <laughs> or, literally, we had a shit DJ. All the rugby team turned up, ate the free pizza. Mm. Pissed off, we were left with an empty dance hall. So we we changed that to please, uh, and it was fortunately a right roaring success. And then I had an entertainment production company where we did big dance events, concerts, etc. So that was really my other than being a journalist at the Old Bailey for my uncle. That was my real first <laughs> business, really. Yeah, dance yeah. Event, yeah. And then you know via via Procter and Gamble and consulting in Bain. Mm. What I'm interested in, you went in, you spent many years 
at Bain doing net promoter scores and so on. And then <laughs> is it God. quite the journey to go from being the strategy boffin to a, a leader of you know, an entrepreneur startup, if you like? Well, actually, all the way through P&G and Bain, I had my events business. So both ah, businesses right. were pretty flexible in allowing me to do that. So I was still having to kind of do the get outs at you know, events, be the last person mm. to leave knackered while you're loading the truck up so there was probably some kind of continuity between that kind mm. of event and doing restaurants however i do think that um yes there, i remember one night i'd done four shifts in a row i'd done a, a friday night a double shift on a saturday a double shift on a sunday and the, and the double shift on the monday bank holiday because i think henry was away and i was so tired and i dropped this um this tray from this um till and literally every there must have been about four thousand coins and they just rolled under every piece of equipment and i was spent four hours <laughs> trying to find all the money and then i had to walk home because there, there was no transport and i was thinking you know what there is a difference between consulting and running mm. these restaurants mm. and you know what free pizza wasn't bad at, mm. at bain yeah no well maybe i should have stuck mm. there but you know <laughs> we, we, we did it was it because you you learned at bain lots of businesses and leaders who were doing it wrong and you thought i can do better than this so sit down with henry dimbleby and decide on this startup idea yeah so henry and i and then allegra i think it, we were as much inspired actually by people that were doing it well uh-huh. i looked to people you know like eve and i i never know how to pronounce his surname let's go with Choinard because it's a kind of frenchy kind of name uh the guy that runs patagonia anita roddick who mm. i indirectly uh knew from body shop mm. um southwest airlines in america who certainly yeah. put fun at the heart of their business, even though they've safety is their number one priority. So I think I was probably inspired by seeing great people. I did also think potentially that big business was lacked a teeny bit of humanity at times, mm. uh, and some of those leaders weren't entirely in touch with the people who were working in their shops or their factories. Does it still lack it now? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I think they they're trying harder but i think there's a there's still a division between sort of the sheen and the reality yes, if, yes. if you like so it, i think for a lot of leaders it's quite hard to to really really put it you know they say this is at the center of our business yeah. but i think it's quite hard for them to you know live it you yeah. know day after day after day and yeah. so on and i think also if there's pressure depending on who owns the business yeah. you know so patagonia has a bit more freedom i think it's still owned yeah. by the founder yeah. but you know if you're on the stock market and uh, i remember in, you know interviewing paul polman at unilever quite a lot he always said that you know the only thing that gives me license to do all the good stuff is you know, keep making the profit, pleasing the shareholders, and uh, I think and so yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm inspired by the the leadership of the guy. Is it what's the Americans aluminium company? Is it Alcoa? Yes, I think it's Alcoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who I put this in my book when you're not fighting available on Amazon and elsewhere. Anyway, um, so um, so the little story that I put in the book was about the guy that took over Alcoa and the share, and he went to his first shareholders meeting, which was an analyst meeting, and he said, "I'm only here to talk to you about safety. Under my tenure, we're only going to talk about." safety and we're going to make mm. Alcoa the safest company in America and everyone's like yeah thanks very much but what about the return on capital mm-hmm. it's like no no I'm here to talk how did you hear me I'm here to talk about safety mm. under his tenure Alcoa became the safest one of the safest companies in America from one of the least mm. safe yeah and the share price quadrupled yeah and brilliant. so brilliant because obviously suddenly if you do one thing well you do everything well yeah so mm. I do quite sometimes like that kind of I think it takes a the CEO who can stand up to the shareholders and a CEO that can provide a vision for the shareholders. Mm-hmm. And it might not be over the next 18 months, but it certainly is balancing the short and long term as they go. Yeah. I really admire those CEOs that can do it in a public environment, in a publicly yeah. listed environment. Yeah. And I think that sometimes you do
do get brave CEOs mm. who are either articulate enough or courageous enough to re-educate the shareholders. And I think mm. it's important that we support mm. those kind of CEOs. I, I totally agree with you. And, and I think the trick with being a CEO is you you have to live the vision mm. and keep this, keep up there above the clouds a bit. Yeah. Understand what's going on. Let your team get on with it. But keep selling the vision to your, yeah. to your guys. I mean, I did some work with Disney when I was working in the London Olympics. And Disneyland Paris, the whole Disney go-to is magical everything yeah. is magical yeah and they they are extraordinarily good at this whether mm. it's the guy sweeping the streets or serving the burgers or operating the rides it's magical yeah and they live and breathe it mm. it's it's a really strong culture well you have an easier ride with stakeholders craig at the albert hall because you've only got the queen as patron <laughs> we do have the queen as patron she's wonderful uh, <laughs> no, we love the queen tell me about i want to know um, a little bit about your beginnings because it looks like there was a time when you may have been an actor and then you thought, forget that. I don't want to be on the stage. He's got a nice voice, hasn't he? Well, we, sonorous. Yeah, I, sonorous. I, I don't yeah, have an, really I don't good, have an really Uber good. license, so I thought I, I, I'll never get ahead. So then there was these roles in marketing and, and related, and the, the transformational role, it's a very, very long title, but you had to bring the razzle-dazzle to the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Yes, basically. I had three portfolios, and we joke about it, saying it's basically bunting parties and openings, which is true. So I ran the cultural program for Sydney Olympics. And also, you were the cultural attaché. I was the cultural attaché. I was the Les Patterson of the Sydney Olympics. Now, that involved you. So you, you were lighting all of those fireworks. Uh, well, effectively, yes. yes. Actually, actually, the most terrifying night was we had, it was the night before the opening ceremony, and the guy that had run the LA Olympics said, he said, Craig, whatever you do do something really amazing the night before because the whole yeah. world's in town right so we did this event at the sydney opera house of course well, we had yeah. andrea bocelli <laughs> singing we had pat, pat cash carrying the olympic torch giving it to andrea bocelli wow. who sang an aria and they gave it to Olivia newton john wow. and ran along da, da. it was amazing but at the same time we had to turn the rings on the, on the sydney harbour bridge and it was an absolute nightmare. Oh, there were so many people involved. Yeah. But, you know, it worked. Oh, well, I think you got God, away with it. it we got away with it. That's right. And was that, was, so well that project, was that the first time you regarded yourself, you were leading a team? There must have been a load of people on the ground to make that happen. It, well, actually, it was quite a small team initially. It was a four-year gig. So yep. we had four festivals. And our, the core team was only about 40 people. But by the time we got to the year 2000, which was the last of the four festivals, I had about... 1,600 staff, including all the contractors and the various companies and, and so on and so on. So it was massive. And we honestly had no idea what we were doing. We were very young. It was a yeah. young team. And it was the first time Sydney had ever hosted anything like this. Yeah. The scale was beyond what we'd ever imagined. So it was good training that you just think, well, you yeah. know what, let's just do a straw poll. Yeah. What do you all think we should do? Let's, okay, let's do that. And we'll give that and a go. you've got a deadline. You've got a very strong <laughs> deadline. Yeah. And interestingly, in the Olympic Games overall, you had two kinds of people. There's sort of the engineering folk who'd made the venues and that sort of stuff, yeah. and people like us who came from, you know, show folk. And they kept impressing upon us that the opening ceremony is the 11th of September, 2000, at 7 p.m. or whatever. And we were yeah. all like, well, of course it is. You know, we're used yeah, to yeah. a show going up yeah. at 7.30 every night. Whereas if you're an engineer, when's the bridge finished? Well, yeah. it's finished when we finish it kind yeah. of thing. Mm. So Mm. Look at um, HS2. Yes, 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 yeah, it's barely started. Yeah, that's right. That's Old right. Wembley so <laughs> deadlines didn't worry us too much. Yep. Uh, but the scale was, yeah, it was. Completely... Then when you'd done that, did you think, well, you know, I've done that. I can, I can do anything now. I'm, 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 I'm in the boss class. Well, yeah, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, maybe. Yeah. But then people came looking it, for you. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, it was certainly it was a good job for me in that it did give you a profile beyond just Sydney, which is why I ended up over, oh. living over in London, I suppose. So yeah, it was handy. For John, what have you learned since those early days of, of spilling coins all over the floor? You know, you're a fully formed, you know, leader as you sit here today. No. What have I learned? Yeah, I think I've learned 
how useless humans are. Uh, and how we're, <laughs> Any in particular? How well, you know, humans are wrecked by we're so ego, fear, yeah. shame, anger, insecurity. And it's basically, you know, the job of a leader is just to deal with that and to try and get people beyond that. So I think what I've learned is that, and I've learned partly, I think, through Leon and the associate work that I've done with a martial art called Wing Chun, which I have learned for the last five years, is that we're very, humans are very easily manipulated through what we might call ego which is principles of shame, principles of anger, principles of fear. And I think that in order to create an amazing organisation, you have to allow people to understand that and get beyond that. So I think that's the number one thing that I've learned. And whatever size jigsaw piece I am, I need to be that. I need to educate my team that that's who I am. Allow them to be their size shape mm. jigsaw piece. And then together we can make the jigsaw puzzle. So that's kind of the number one probably framework that I think I've learned. Did some of that thinking develop, Sarah? I think it's around 2014. There were the three founders and then you yes. were pushed out in front as you are the CEO now. Yeah. Um, so then you have to have the bigger thoughts about organisation and leadership, do you? I think thoughts is one word. Maybe ability to not think and act on instinct yep. and intuition is another, right? So <laughs> yes. I'm probably in the... I'm probably trying to not overthink. I I believe in in acting as a leader without, and although I'm probably guilty of creating too many mental constructs, I think I probably at that point realised that I have to lead in the way that I have instinctively felt the organisation has needed. Mm. Uh, and I think being liberated as a leader mm. and knowing that you are going to lead not according to someone else's rule book, but according to what your instincts are telling you how you should be leading, I think that's the sort of breakthrough which I had. Yeah. Craig, tell me about mentors, people who I think there's a number of people, um, particularly in Australia in those formative years, who really told you to go for it and how to go for it. Uh, well, if I go way back to being in high school, which is an awful long time ago. Uh, the reason I ended up in the arts is because I had two brilliant teachers who championed us you know, rambunctious young kids to see symphony orchestras mm. and see dance companies brilliant. and so on and theatre and so on. And it just opened my eyes to a whole world I would never have seen were it what not were their for... their names? Their names were Peter Jensen and Bill Clark. Oh. And they were sensational, these two guys. And I, I would have been a barrister or something. I would have been something yeah. else, you know, if it weren't for these guys. And I still keep in touch with them, and they're, they're, you know, brilliant fellows. So they were the first two, I suppose. And then when I went to the opera, there was a guy called Donald McDonald, who, I know it's his real name. <laughs> opera imagine, opera. Imagine, imagine being his parents. Yeah, very nice fellow. And he, he was my mentor for many, many years, right through uh, working at the opera and then working at the Olympics and then and beyond as well. And it's just useful with these guys, and you probably had them too, John, through your life, just sort of yeah. sounding boards. You can just, Definitely. You, can, you have the really dumb questions. You can look, Definitely. am I being stupid about this 100%. job or this decision and so on and so on. Just something you said before, maybe think, you know, when you get to this point, you want to also make sure that your team feel they've got permission to fail. Yeah, definitely. You know, because that's how you learn. Mm. Absolutely. You screw things up yeah. and you can then you can debrief on it and go, okay, that was a cock up, but let's think about it and what can we do oh, to make absolutely. it better. I mean the perfectionist businesses, you know, they take eighteen months for totally. their projects to fail. Yeah, yeah. Whereas exactly. it's like, okay, if you have start now, I expect you to fail today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And the environment's different. Today. Yeah. When I think about the ballet world, you know, in ballet when I was running English National Ballet, we talk about Macmillan and Ashton, these two great mm. British choreographers, who in the day, most works they created were failures. Mm. The works we remember are the ones that survived over all these years. What, what, mm. what, one thing that I'm fascinated by, and I, I did I did put a little bit in the, the, the book that I was written, is about this idea of p uh, total quality management. Because 
what happened was Americans went over to Japan after the war and said, we want to rebuild your economy because mm. we don't want you to be an adversary. <laughs> um, so, so here's how to do it. You try, you fail, blah, blah, blah. So, and then in the, in the 60s, American business industry had failed because it was very top-down, very mm. conglomerate-led. And they said to the Japanese, what are you doing? And they said, oh, we're just doing what you told us to do. <laughs> oh, really, what was that? Just learn, fail, adapt. <laughs> and then the denouement was in the 80s. We looked at what Japan was doing, which, which we thought was perfect, mm. And so thought we thought total quality management meant everything has to be perfect. You can't make mistakes. Yeah, no, yeah. the perfectionism of a Sony TV came from the thousands of mistakes that had got them to that, what yeah, we see as exactly. a perfect outcome. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, perfectionism and the lack of mm. failure is definitely important. Yeah. So, yeah. John, John, you've got to give me some of these failures then now. Oh, at Leon? Yes. Oh, my God. Just something something on the... This, mix. Is, this is only meant to be a single episode. <laughs> this is, um, we'll, we'll edit out one oh, or two. Okay, here we go, here we go. <laughs> failures. Okay, so making our menu too complex to begin with, number right. one, opening a restaurant in Brompton Road that didn't work because uh, it was behind a tree and about 10 metres out and you couldn't see the tills. What else? Loads of stuff. Oh, I went to, at one point, I took the photographs off the menu boards and went to a grid system where you could have everything everything different ways. Like a, a sort of, you know, have your Moroccan meatballs in this and this and this and have your Thai chicken in this, this, whatever it was. So so I screwed that up. Um, uh, what else have I screwed up? I think I probably, you know, I make some hiring mistakes. Um, mm. We all do. We have to learn quickly and move those people on maybe but but it, um, but everything else? it is the and the, these are not you know these don't sound you know, you're not saying oh we we're into oh. bring we shouldn't do these are the oh. details oh okay well, yes also i mean we so we run out of, we ran out of money at one point i had to put a reasonable amount of my money back in we mortgaged in the house and what other things have we done um <laughs> just run of the mill yeah, kind of failures but, you know, yeah. lots of i mean so many issues i do mm. think that i went to see steve ells who runs chipotle which is a big american fast casual yeah. and he said you know what john when the e coli thing hit or oh, the the food safety thing hit at Chipotle, the whole organisation fell apart because nothing bad had ever happened to it. Everyone in the organisation was used to working at this well-fetted, well-loved, um, financially, seemingly um, impervious mm. business. Mm. Suddenly the confidence re was wrecked in the entire organisation. Mm. And I think that I think we're blessed that we've screwed up so many things. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Mm. Craig, talk a little bit about motivations. What gets you out of bed in the morning to do to run the Albert Hall? Is it putting something great on stage or uh, well, because well, there's a lot a lot of stuff. I would say my my team most of all. I mean, I've got a I've got a great bunch. They're yeah. so motivated. They love working at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. They're really driven by it. You know, we don't pay particularly well. A lot of our staff work underground or mm. behind the scenes. They mm. have no public facing role. A lot of the stewards have to deal with a lot of crap, you know, from people. Um, but the the culture is really strong and I think that gets me out of bed most of all is just knowing how those guys work and what, what makes them tick. Mm. Do you think the British public appreciate the Albert Hall enough? Ah, uh, I do, yeah. It's mm. everyone seems to love the Royal Albert Hall. Mm, yeah. It's a much loved institution. Mm. The, the way I describe it, I say, you know, it's such a it's such a special thing mm. for every member of the audience and for every artist, and yet everyone's welcome. It's mm. not elitist. It was yeah. never designed to be elitist, but it's really special to go there, whether you're mm. performing on stage. I mean, the, the, there's an, a DVD of Adele at the Royal Albert Hall, which is the highest-selling DVD of a concert, I think, ever, anywhere, mm. which is because it's her at that place. It's mm. amazing. Katie, yeah. I know when Katie does the proms, I mean, it's clear that the artists are not pretending to be emotionally overwhelmed um, <sighs> performing there. They really are affected by yeah, it. Yeah. And I, I had to take they, it. They take it in, don't they? There's they a, like totally a split do. second where yeah. the singer 
literally looks around them as like, I've got to cherish this. Yeah, I've got to remember yeah. this moment. It goes back, I think, also to the shape. We had the, we have the Olivier Awards now at the Royal Albert Hall. And, and when I first started, Kenneth Branagh was given the Lifetime Achievement Award. And he was saying afterwards that he was blown away by mm. the intimacy that mm. you know, all the all his yeah. gang are all around yeah. him in this in this oval space which mm. is which is amazing so. what about a little on when you're sort of pushing the boundaries and i know there's, uh, there's a good example i thought when you took the ballet company to i think it was wembley stadium or something it was a concert for diana oh yes and they, they shouldn't <laughs> ballet doesn't happen unless there's a sprung floor yeah, but, that was but, a nightmare. But oh. was this another? This was another <laughs> nightmare. You'd rather forget? I uh, know. Well, it was. It was very challenging at the time because it was a. It was a variety show, and it was Elton John and wow. Take That and the remains of the Spice Girls and all sorts just a couple of sparkly dresses <laughs> yeah. that's right and we couldn't put a sprung floor down because there wasn't it wasn't possible you know it was Wembley Stadium it was full it was about oh. 60,000 people it was amazing and we did the last bit of Swan Lake and when the prince ran on stage yeah. the entire stadium stood and cheered like a football match I mean I had oh, goosebumps wow. and I was, I was crying it was oh. extraordinary so oh. it was a great moment for ballet and also Princess Diana was the patron of the company and mm. we were doing it for Prince William and Prince Harry so it was wow. a huge honour yeah. to give a little bit of magic of what Diana had loved so much about the company Lovely. back you know and it was it was one of those moments but it was an absolute good mess for the physios so it's that yes. so, it's, <laughs> so it's that great stuff the great the great moments but also you know part of the day job we kind of touched on it there's the plumbing not just the toilets there's checking the acoustics are working and there's this excavation yeah. and sewerage and, and I'm you know, learning a lot about sewerage yes. and toilets you've diverted a sewer recently I think too actually yes yeah. <laughs> a victorian yes. sewer wow. who knew yeah. underneath yeah. us yeah john you've talked a bit about your staff uh, in the past and, and yeah. i don't think this gets much credit really but you see quite a responsibility quite a number of your staff will be quite young they'll be 16 yeah. 17 year olds and are you saying that they need a bit of help to be work ready or you have almost a responsibility this if this is their first role definitely i th- i find i um i'm sure you'll find the same thing in the young people that work with you yes Schools do a good job of getting people to get their best possible marks they can in exams. That's kind of the job of schools. Mm. Seems to be. Shouldn't be, but seems to be. Mm. Um, And we have young people from all around the world, and whether they're from Britain or elsewhere. I think that one's first job um, has a huge impact on how you live the rest of your life. Um, And it's often in a cafe or a place like Leon. Exactly. exactly. And And the... I think the relationships you form at that age, the fun you have or not, or the environment you're in, it's character forming. And for me, we teach everyone um, that joins Leon, we teach them things that are about knowing themselves, who they are. We're not taught at school who we are. We're not given a map of our own character. Mm. We're not taught that we have a personal unconscious, which is you know created by our our environment and our life a, a collective unconscious which goes back to when we were fish that has these archetypes like good bad mother father mm. uh, we're not taught transference that perhaps when i'm angry with you i'm not actually angry with you i'm angry because you might be my dad now, all of these kind of tools psychological tools mm. time management tools um we teach them communication skills um all of these things i think are and we have 1200 people at work directly evening with our own restaurants 2000 including the franchise restaurants I think we've got an amazing opportunity. I call it, I call them the fourth emergency service. I say, you know what, ultimately, when we have 3,000 restaurants, like like Walmart responded to Hurricane Katrina better than the federal government mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. devolved responsibility and trust to the managers 
Um, you know, one the the Westminster Bridge attack. We had one person that was missed by a foot, but stayed there for forty five minutes, giving first aid to a policeman. Um, when the London Bridge attack happened, and we were our, our both our office and our restaurants were directly in the cordon. We were very lucky to escape uh, anyone being hurt. Mm. Um, you know, we gave first aid. The restaurants, without me asking, reopened, gave food and drink to everybody for free. Mm. And I think that it's because those sorts of values that we have, those are fundamentally the exportable bit of Leon. If Leon was to do beer or an airline, that yeah. is the exportable yeah. spirit, which and, I think would get translated. And you across. asked me yeah. about the CEOs that do it and the CEOs don't, and it's better to let your people embody the brand yes. how they see fit yes. rather than you invest in a, in a, in a glossy 90-second ad that says, we really are this good. Oh, I, I just think you are, you can either tell someone you're funny or you can make them laugh, mm. and that's a metaphor. Mm. It's better than my tree one, isn't it? But it's, you know, it's, it's, I think we have to, in our industry... Advertising is not how to grow. Mm. How to mm. grow is to be nice to customers when mm. they come in and give them mm. some nice food. Mm. And and then in order for me to do that, my priority has to be to look after my team. Mm. So I definitely think about my job is to look after my team and their mm. job to look after the customers. Craig, what's adv- the advice that you give to people further down your organisation who want to scale the heights you have done? It's pretty similar to John. I, mean, I think mm. you've got to have people empowered understand the parameters of their job, but also give them a bit of a bit of stretch as well to grow into a, a role. I think you did you need a bit of a game plan as to where you want to head. I mean, I mm. think we all change careers five mm. or six times. Mm. So you, you might have a plan and not stick to it, but I think having a plan is not a bad mm. idea. Mm. Uh, that's not where you're going to end up, but at least you keep going in the right direction mm. or a direction. So I'm curious, you're setting up the company. Leon is your dad. Yes. So how did that conversation go? Did you run it by him first? Do you know what? I can't run it. But I can't remember running it past him. I remember someone saying, "Have you thought of a good name for for the company yet?" And I said, and, "And it's kind of it's an instinct." And I think the best things often are instinct. I said, "You know what, Leon? That's a nice name. It's my dad's name." <laughs> and I was being flippant, and I thought, "Oh, actually, maybe it's all right." Um, and I, th- I did sort of gingerly. A mate of mine, Angus, who was working with us, he told Henry before. I had plucked up enough courage to, to, to tell Henry. And so I think Henry had had some time to come to terms with it. But, you know, I'm like, you know what? I'm in charge of the brand side of it. I could decide. So, um, yes, and it was a name that Leon the film had come out. Um, oh, the, the pig farmer? It. No, the other one, the assassin one. Okay. Uh, Leon the pig farmer, I've never seen. I've never seen that, but apparently he's in the pig farmer one You've got well. two choices, a pig exactly, farmer exactly. or an assassin. Yeah. It's also a name that didn't, doesn't mean anything. So, you know, yeah. right. you don't, it's not called, like, Neutralicious or something crap no. like that. But it sounds um, vaguely exotic, yeah, which is good. Yeah. And a lot of European countries have got a town called Leon, L-E-O-N. So yeah. It's, it's yeah. vaguely trans-Europe and peripatetic. Mm. But um, over time, my dad's K, my dad's imagery, uh, the, the one in his swim shorts uh, on leave from the RAF in the Mediterranean, that became he became a gay icon in Compton, <laughs> Old Compton Road, mm. Old Compton Road, I see, Old Compton Street, Old mm. Compton Street, Street. Um, Street. Yeah, that's right, yeah, Old, mm. Old Compton Street. So, um, and he he always pretended to um, not like the attention. And I'm hoping, because he's dead now, I can't ask him, but I'm hoping he liked the attention. But he always pretended to be very shy, which he was actually, mm. a very shy man. Mm. But, um, yeah, he went with it, which was good. I never, I can't remember ever asking, which is terrible. <laughs> I keep saying, look, to my Auntie Nita, because there's pictures of my him and, and my family, the Woods, the Vincents. Um, I keep saying, look, if I sell Leon... Just sue them for the image rights because I've never, I never got your permission, right? <laughs> so that's a secret. That's a secret ongoing. So the family, yeah. can get, the family can get paid twice. Yeah, exactly. That's right. exactly. That's right. <laughs> okay. And what have I not asked you both? Couple of Paraguay. 
begins with an A. Correct. Uh, Asuncion. Oh, my oh God. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank we you. did not rehearse that. Uh, we did that. not rehearse, that. Didn't rehearse I cla- that. I claim the free Moroccan meatballs. Well done, done, done. So, well done, you. Uh, John Vincent, Craig Hassel, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton, which is supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, including a conversation with David Sproul, the former senior partner at professional services giant Deloitte. Here he is explaining how to tackle the fall in trust in the big four firms. The first is we've got to get better at explaining who we are and, and what we stand for, because we should always accept mistakes will happen, but fundamentally... You know, we're clear that, that we do the right thing and we're just not good enough at explaining that. And, and in some ways, we have to take responsibility for the fact that trust has gone because we haven't done a good enough job at dealing with it. And if those are errors, we have to learn from it. Frankly, if it's down to bad behavior and our, our organization is just a lens on society, so we will have people who sometimes do the wrong thing, we'll deal with it and they'll leave the organization. Mm-hmm.